0: Chris, I love this podcast, Other People, with Brad Listy. It's conversations with writers. Can you imagine?
1: Um, Do the writers (laughs) let him talk ever? Okay.
0: Because Brad is a writer himself, Other People is the best interview podcast. Literary boomers, literary Gen X, literary millennials, Other People. Other com. Look into it. Love each other. Tell me about your father.
2: You know, it's interesting now, I've, I've kind of now learned that sometimes we all say the same things, we just use different phraseology to describe it. Whereas I go, oh, I'm inspired to create this. He will say, God spoke to me.
1: This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. How do you find a way to connect with your conservative religious father when you're gay and a pornographer? What does it take to reconcile after years of no communication? On this episode, Jason Bucktel, AKA Jake Jackson, the man behind the award-winning and revolutionary gay porn brand, Cocky Boys, talks about how coming out as gay was only his first step in a series of coming outs, how his husband Adrian was the catalyst for ending years of family estrangement, and how he now credits his father for a lot of his success as a pornographer.
2: Before I was born, my father was, I think, uh, a man on the rise. You know, we went to Ohio State University. He was an engineer. You know, he had worked in the public health service. He was in Baton Rouge designing and building houses. Like, he was creating subdivisions. He had married a, a beautiful woman. I I remember seeing pictures of him with a beautiful long red Buick convertible and my sister in the car and his wife with the beehive hairdo. I think he probably was the ideal family man, the man on the rise, achieving the American dream. And then I was adopted by him and his wife. So I never knew that life. Um, I knew the next life, which was him marrying a divorcee who had four children? Myself, my sister Lisa made two, and basically we were then the Brady Bunch.
0: Who was the the divorcee? How did they meet?
2: So the divorcee, Jenny, that's my mother. She lived next door, like directly next door. So he was a single father with with two children. So Jenny was Jenny's my mother. She lived right next door, and my father was a single father with two young children, a young daughter and a toddler. And so we were babysat by the next-door neighbor and her three children. So immediately, before they even got married, we were a family living in, in two separate houses. And I, I sort of vaguely remember that time. My clear memories really came into focus when they got married. Because I, I thought, oh, isn't this nice? You get to watch your parents get married. I thought that was really fun. Cake and party and everything. Uh, and then we after that, we moved into a big house all together.
1: So how did your family function with that that fusion? Was it a cohesive thing?
2: Yes, I mean, it. You know, this was in the '70s, so um, it was in my mind a perfectly normal family. I mean, we we sat down to dinner together every night. I mean, he went off to work during the day. I was at home with mom. Uh, you know, go to school or preschool. I, mean, I went to the school in the neighborhood. I walked there. I mean, it was like what you see in movies. It was a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore. So for me, it's it's a very nostalgic kind of sweet time. I feel like I might be part of the last generation that really sat down at dinner with their family. In my mind, it was a, it was a perfect childhood.
0: And where, where was this? It was...
2: South Louisiana and um, Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a college town, capital town. But at the same time... I was out in the country and outside and, you know, outdoors a lot as well. So it was, it was kind of like a perfect life growing up. I, you know, as a child, I spent very little time with him. By the time I got up, he would gone to work this point when I was, you know, five or six, I would get up and I was the last one up and all my brothers and sisters were all considerably older than me. They're, They're 10, 15, 20 years older than me. So by the time everyone got out of the house, I was mostly kind of left alone with my mom and then my dad would come home in the evening And depending if you had done something wrong, you know, you might be in line to get a spanking, you know, or get talking to or disciplined. Usually I was not on the receiving end of that, thank God. So there was very little time spent with him because he was was now raising six kids. Uh, You would get little moments together. And those moments together, to me, felt always very official. It was, you're now you know, you have a moment, you have to be present, you have to be respectful. And there was not sort of lovey-dovey or what's this or what's that. I'm the direct opposite of him. I'm creative and emotional and a little wily, a little wild child, and he is none of that. He is very straightforward and he's an engineer. Everything has a place and a purpose and a time. And so to that degree, I maybe avoided him (laughs) to some degree because it wasn't, I knew just at an early age, it wasn't, I didn't want that kind of regulation.
0: What about like like a Saturday afternoon, like when your dad wasn't working on the weekends, what was he doing in the house or would you have been spending time with him?
2: So the weekends would be... Usually reserved for some sort of chore, (laughs) you know, mowing the lawn or or cleaning up or picking something up. Very early on, and this is kind of interesting. You know, my dad was like he also had the sort of side part of him. You know, he was very industrious and always wanted to be doing something and doing something for someone or doing something that had a purpose. So, like I said, we were in the '70s. So my parents they had taken in Vietnam refugees. So we would sometimes, on the weekends, be uh, helping one of them move into an apartment or something. And I remember going with my parents and helping paint the apartment and moving them in. So there was always some sort of community service. And usually it was me and, and them. Sometimes I remember we would go and collect aluminum cans. And he was like obsessed with recycling. I mean, this was... 45 years ago almost you know he was obsessed with recycling so we'd get aluminum cans and he had another thing where he would go and collect all these data cards from the from the IBM company and take them to the recycling plant because we had this big van it wasn't I guess at the time, I didn't feel like it wasn't because we needed money. He just, everything you did had to have a purpose. And part of it was he started picking up cans because he hated seeing the litter everywhere. He just would always have these little, these little projects. They were nonstop projects. He was raising six kids, most of them who were teenagers in the 70s. In Louisiana, okay, and so they were wild childs. I mean, they were like wanting to go to California and, and smoke pot and do all the things that everybody else was doing. So his hands were full, and a lot of times I could tell that the the boys, at least my three brothers, were often in trouble. And so you know he was in the public health service. It's part of the military. It's not he wasn't a soldier, so to speak. But he kind of ran he ran the house like a ship. And so you know you, you were just always grateful that you weren't. <laughs> you know, getting the discipline. And so to tell you, I mean, I did not like, you know, running around collecting cans all over Baton Rouge. I mean, but now today I find that I I have a big piece of property. So I'm always out there with the metal detector and collecting old pieces of junk and things. And, And I just remember that sort of sense of looking for stuff and discovering stuff is still with me. I wasn't interested in picking up cans. I was interested in picking up stuff that, oh, this would be good for an art project or I can make something out of this. He didn't understand that. So that was all junk to him. The cans you could smash and bring in and get. And at the end of all of my labors, I would get like $2 of recycling. And, you know, it's funny today, every time I put a can in the recycling bin of our house, I just kind of, who knew he was a forerunner of of where this was all heading. Uh, I remember he also, there was a time that he was, he was interested in like selling solar panels, like, and he was trying to get everyone in the neighborhood to do solar panels and solar panels. And everyone was just like, oh my God, this guy and his crackpot schemes. And now look at where we are. Like he's had a very interesting sort of career life. I mean, he was he started in the public health service working on um, water irrigation systems in the uh, Indian reservations in Arizona, in the Nixon administration, well before I was born. And then he then moved to Louisiana. He was stationed at a leper colony, one of the last leper colonies in Louisiana called Carville. I, I don't 100% still to this day understand and know what he did, but that's where he was stationed. And then after that, he went into private practice. He had an insurance company, sold insurance, and then retired from that, and then went and worked in Louisiana for uh, the Environmental Protection Agency which in Louisiana was just a rubber stamp for the oil companies to, you know, do whatever they needed to do. It, it, it was, but he was the only one in the environment in that position that took his job seriously and really was raising the alarm about coastal erosion and, and really trying to get people to see we're losing our state. Like literally the map has to be redrawn every five years because we're losing the, the state. And he was always ringing the alarm bells about that. I mean, he, he was a thorn in at that time, our governor's, you know, Edwin Edwards side was. And, and they were literally like, Jim, please, like, you know, what are you doing? Come on, you're making your life miserable. Why are you doing this? And his whole position was, this is the right, this is right, mm-hmm. this is right. And, and his sort of point was, is like, oh, you know, I, I'm just kind of doing this. because I don't have anything else to do. And that's that was his sort of fourth career. I think he was more concerned about how just easily it was for Everything to kind of get rubber stamped and, and whatnot, you know, but but it was from that all the way down to the reality that, that the nutria, that, which was these giant river rats, basically, that were brought in years and years ago by the Spanish, uh, you know, for, you know, to get rid of this, that or the other, literally was eating louisiana away so they were eating the the roots of the marsh and that was causing the sort of the brackish water to come in and keep creeping in and so so even at one point you know he opined about you know trying to get the the nutria fur (laughs) industry you know going to louisiana so there would be more nutria trappings and and people would wear (laughs) nutria coats what's
0: your coat it's
2: nutria oh nutria it's (laughs) It's the Louisiana swamp beaver, you know. was like they needed a new uh, branding of it because I don't know if you ever saw one, but they're giant rats with big teeth. I mean. So he would sort of share these things with me and my dad always seemed like he was the single man going up the hill to fight a battle. My dad went up to the governor's office in Louisiana and asked to sign the petition against the sports stadium. They all looked at him like he was cuckoo crazy. And he said he went to sign the book and he was the first and only name on the the register. And that was kind of my dad. I mean, he was, I think, you know, in so many ways he was ahead of his time.
1: What about religion? What kind of role did that play in your household?
2: Hmm. Well, I had sort of a two pronged, uh, uh, there was two phases of it. You know, my first sort of introduction to religion was, you know, we went to church every Sunday and we went to, I call it a country club church. And we were Episcopalian and which in Louisiana is a little odd because everyone's pretty much Catholic. So it's like Catholic light. And we went to a very nice church. It was in a sort of a different part of town. It was like kind of the old part of town. And it was very social. It was very nice. They were the part of the adult leaders of a singing group that we were all in called The Followers. And, you know, every Easter we would go and tour and go to all different churches and sing. And we it was a big deal. And so to me, it was very fun and very social and kind of chic. And then... There came a point, it really started to happen after all my brothers and sisters moved out. I was sort of the only child there. I don't know what happened, but at a certain point, my mom got connected into a sort of a Bible study that got very religious. So the first thing I remember was, that I vividly remember, was Halloween got canceled. There's no more Halloween. There's no more decorations. There's no more trick-or-treating. And she had it all. This is where trick-or-treating comes from. It's druid. It's satanic. And, and she had it all, you know not in my house, not in my place. And so instead of Halloween, we went to a church group. Everything was, we had cross cookies and stuff. And, and, you know, it was keeping it safe. Yes, exactly. You know, so that was the first sign. And then they split from the church and they started their kind of own church. And um, with, with these sort of offshoots, then it got kind of, for me, it got a little cuckoo crazy. And I say cuckoo crazy. I'm not, I don't believe that now, but at the time, it was very ecclesiastical. It was very, you know, I guess some people would describe it as Holy Roller, speaking in tongues, you know, there was no more like grand procession down the aisle singing onward Christian soldiers. I mean, they were like doing spiritual dancing and, you know, and people would get up and testify. And I was a teenager that was like, no, i this is, this is way too much. This is, this is, I don't know where this is heading. And I became very, very resentful of them for sort of putting me through that. And then it just kept going on and on where they, they then, my dad had this vision or dream about creating a garden and it was called I Father's Garden. And basically that became the ministry of this small church. Looking back now, I get angry with myself for being so cynical about it. Basically it was a garden that anyone could come to and work at. If they were hungry and take as much food as they wanted, you know, that was the premise. And it just kept sort of growing and building beyond that. You know, Boy Scouts would come and do projects. there. school groups would come and learn about gardening and planting. And this was once again, way, way before this was late eighties, early nineties, they were doing everything organic. They were doing all raised beds, no pesticides. It was ahead of its time in, in so many ways. And I'm going, you're, you guys are crazy. And so, and at that time, that's where so much of their energy went into. Every weekend was then at the garden. And that's when I sort
1: of checked out. It's interesting how you describe him initially as so pragmatic and an engineer's mind. And yet at the same time, he went into this kind of religious extremism and he had to have a vision to create a garden. Like those are two kind of opposing mindsets. In my mind, they are. But I mean, people are,
2: you know, it's interesting now I've, I've kind of now learned that sometimes we all say the same things. We just use different phraseology to describe it. Whereas I go, oh, I'm inspired to create this. He will say, God spoke to me. So, I mean, and it's taken me a long time to figure this out (laughs) because I'm going, um, sorry, that just sounds like cuckoo crazy magic talk. Which, by the way, they were against for Halloween. A hundred percent, you know, you know, for many reasons. But where does inspiration come from? Why is an inspiration just as magic? For me, I mean, I grew up, I mean, I didn't drink, I didn't do any. I mean, I was literally, I was an Eagle Scout. I was a perfect boy, except for being gay and having my porn stash and doing the things that boys do in their mind. But when I first started, when I did drugs for the first time, it was, it really allowed me to see things not in black and white, but is what's possible, what's more possible. There, there's not a negative, you know, at least for me, there was never a sort of a, a negative sort of, you can't do this. Everything was possible. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's what God, that's what religion was for them.
0: What were your adolescence like?
2: It, I think most people's adolescence is either a combination of just trying to survive and figure out who you are and where you're going to go or where you belong. And that was definitely me. My mom put me in sports, baseball and softball and soccer and all these things I just absolutely did not want to do. But you know, you kind of had to do as a a boy in South Louisiana. And then I was in the Boy Scouts and I thrived in the Boy Scouts. I was really, really part of becoming a leader and becoming a Boy Scout and, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the the skills I have now I learned there. But everything was sort of really kind of planned. But I went through a big part of my adolescence knowing that I had to get out of Louisiana. Being an adopted child, I never was like, oh, what's my mom like? What's my dad like? I, I wasn't thinking that. I just was like, I don't belong here. I've been put in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I would spend time in the library, like trying to find out as much information as I could to understand what was happening in my head. So I would try to find things about gay or gay stories or, I mean, I probably looked at every GQ Sports Illustrated magazine I could get my hands on to find the underwear ads. So it sort of was, and then I would, you know, read about Andy Warhol and I'd read about it in New York. And then I got into Truman Capote and then Tennessee Williams. So I got really like connected to gay writers and Southern writers. And so there came a point when I was, you know, in like a senior in high school where I had formed in my mind that I was going to be a confirmed old bachelor, I have to be witty and funny, and I'm going to die tragically. That's the way it goes. And you have to look nice doing it.
0: When you were a little boy, did you ever wonder if you were gay? Or did your, your siblings react to you differently?
2: It's weird. There is a point where you always know you're different. I realized that for me, uh, flying below the radar in that big family was an asset. And I mean, I wasn't calculating it that way, but I, I definitely know that that was, the, that was that. So I'd put on plays and listen to Disney ra- albums and dress up and do all kinds of things. I was a, a silly fairy as a child. And, and I spent most of my time with my sisters, my two sisters, because they were the closest in age to me than my brothers So one time in visiting with them, they were talking about their boyfriends and, and I sort of said to one of my sisters, oh, he's really cute. Oh, he's, oh, whatever. I was, I was, I was gabbing with them and they, they snapped back really quickly. Like, um, no, 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 Jason, boys are not cute to boy. I mean, it was like, it it was, it's the first time as a child that my mind said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, there's something wrong here. You know, red alert, red alert. I I just was like, their, their reaction was so vivid and quick and serious that I realized, okay, don't ever go there again. So I then, after that, became a very good actor and liar. I was like, I was about six, and then as a kid, became this sort of misogynistic little, little pig
1: in a sea sucker suit
2: you know i would go to the mall with my sisters and and they you would be like i would go and talk up the counter girls and go, like, oh baby how are you i uh, you know you want to go on a date and they thought i mean people would laugh and, and egg me on and carry it on and Oh, they would ask, oh, Jason, how many girlfriends do you have? Oh, I don't know, five or six. And, you know, and it, it was just one of those things that everyone thought was funny and cute. And then you had to kind of live up to that.
0: And you mentioned Boy Scouts and Eagle Scouts. Did you, were there boys in your troops that you ever sensed were gay?
2: I remember vividly, this was, this was another moment that I had with friends, we were duck hunting. And I remember the time we were telling sort of Rock Hudson jokes. They were telling Rock Hudson jokes. And, and but at this point, I really knew what I was attracted to. And one of them was like, yeah, you know, if I knew so-and-so was a fag, I'd shove this shotgun up their ass and pull the trigger. So that's when it became super real to me. Like this wasn't a joke. And so you, for me, there was no gaydar. I wasn't trying to sense who was gay. The most memorable moment is really, I had a guy that everyone had sort of said at one point, oh, he, he might be, or this or whatever. And we were counselors at a scout camp and we were preparing for a, a campfire. And we were part of this organization called the Order of the Era, which is like the secret organization within the Boy Scouts. It's all based on Indian lore. And so for the campfire, we're dressing up in Indian outfits. And so headdresses and uh, loincloths and chaps and everything. And he came up behind me and like, grabbed my ass and felt me up a little bit. And Same thing, like, but this was that moment where I'm now the senior in high school, and I just remember I've never felt anything like that in my body, but I knew this could be deadly. I'm still remembering if I, you know, I'd stick a shotgun up his ass, and I just turned to him, and I was like, if you fucking ever touch me again, I will fucking kill you. And so for me, at that point, I realized the next survival mechanism, the next lie is you have to be homophobic. And, you know, so by the time I got to that phase in college, I was a fucking mess. I hated every part of me.
1: At what point did your actual desire converge with your father and mother within the house?
2: It's like anything. You know, there comes a point at the library, those jockey ads don't cut it anymore. You can't just keep looking at a guy in underwear. You want more. You want to know more. And and I, I needed to figure out if I was crazy, like, because there's no internet. There was no nothing. You can't just sort of go and find this. So the first thing I, I was at a friend's house and under his sister's bed, there was a Playgirl. I stole that and you know enjoyed that, but I knew there was something more. And I eventually stole some other magazines. I was like a wee and a Hustler that had men and women doing it. And eventually at one point, my parents found it all. And w- at one point I remember coming home from like a play rehearsal in high school. And I came home and my mom sitting there at the dinner table, which was in the kitchen with a sort of stack of something and there was like a sh- little sheet. <laughs> you know, like, a a, Modesty. Right, exactly. And I was like, what's that? And she has this look on her face. And I'm like, hi, what's going on? And she's like, please sit down. And I sit down. She said, like, well, we're going to wait for your father. And dad came and sat down. And he was did not look as concerned as my mother. And then my mom laid into, I found this in your closet. And, and this is absolutely unacceptable. It, it cannot exist in my house. And if we ever find it again, you will not live here. And... I just was absolutely not expecting that at all that you will not live here conversation so i was rattled and then my dad in the car it was like talking me through it he was being very pragmatic and he's like you just have to understand that this is normal it's unbecoming it potentially can lead to other things
1: is he referring to pornography or gay pornography
2: no at this point there was no gay pornography here it was just the one pictorial that I kept coming back to over and over and over was a guy that was dressed up like Prince in this Purple Rain outfit with, with a guitar. And he was like strumming the guitar really close to the woman's private parts. And she's like in ecstasy about what it's doing to her. And I was just like, because I had a huge cross on Prince and I wasn't allowed to see Purple Rain or any of that sort of stuff. So that's what she was looking at was the, this was not natural. This was not what God intended. And this is leads to other things. And and my dad was like he he even said something like this is not the first time I I've, I've found something like this. And my mom was like what are you what are you talking about? And he's like well it's it's not important but but at that point I knew what he was referring to. He was referring to a playgirl magazine that I had found that I had strategically hid in my boy scout patch collection thinking my mom is never going to go through my patch collection. Like this is but my dad for some reason, I think he was either putting something back or looking if we had something and, and found it. And I remember I'd come home one day and was like ready for my afternoon, <laughs> I love me sesh. And I go to my patch collection and the magazine's gone. And, and at that point, there's no reason for a young man in South Louisiana who's on his way to becoming an Eagle Scout to have a play girl in his. Uh... But my mom had found my underwear stash and I, she asked me what it was. I was like, oh, that's the kind of underwear I wanted. I wanted to show you so you could get me that. And I like boxers. And then for years, all she did was buy me briefs. And so.
1: <laughs> so what becomes clear from that experience with the magazines that your dad did actually have your back a bit more than your mom did?
2: I don't think my dad would look at it in that contents I think he we, he and I never spoke about sex. I don't think he probably really 100% could comprehend what gay was maybe, or that's even a possibility. I think he also knew that I was a boy and I was growing up and he was just also placating and pacifying my mother to a certain degree. But at the same time, this was not normal for him either. So I I think a lot of times, there was a lot of times that he was sort of managing expectations between myself and my mom, Never, never really taking sides just always steering it in a direction that kept the peace. Didn't rock the boat too much. So how did you eventually come out to them? I, had, After being in New Orleans, I moved to Los Angeles. And that was now my official escape. You know, I was now out of Louisiana. I was out of that environment. And after two years of being there, I, I met someone And ironically, he looked exactly like every crush I ever had. So he looked exactly like the boy in 16 Candles, Jake Ryan. He looked exactly like the guy in the Calvin Klein ad that I looked at over and over and over. And so I couldn't believe that I was dating someone that looked like this. And then we fell in love and I realized that this was someone I wanted to be with and we wanted to be together. So this was probably two years after we were together and I had, um, I'd called them and said, I need to tell you something. This is who I am. The reason I'm telling you this is because I, in my mind, I had decided once I moved here and who I was that I was never going to tell you this. I was just going to let you live the rest of your life. I was going to separate myself from you. And I would just keep sort of saying, hi, hey, whatever, you know, living my lie. I, I thought I was really good at it. But at that point, when you then meet someone that you love and you want to have an honest relationship with, it's hard then to live any part of your life as a lie it's painful because then you have to start trying to keep it all up and then you have to enroll them in your lies and and stuff like that and i was like i can't do this anymore and so i called them and i kind they have to know i mean but at that point it really was i had to for me and for him tell them and so i did and it was We still love you, of course. Um, There was a lot of religious conversation and, you know, and back and forth and crying. And there was a little bit of a peace that happened after that call. After that, I had a one-on-one talk with my dad on the phone. And he said, son, it's, I guess what I'm struggling with is everything that I've been taught tells me this is wrong in life and in the church. And I said, well, at that point, I saw an opening because he is an engineer, and he does look at things in a very pragmatic, scientific way. I mean, I was horrible in math, which drove him crazy, because it was like, to him, it was like, this is so easy. And, you know, and I'm like, no, it's not. So we we were always clashing the sort of creative, scientific math. There are certain things that are set, there are certain things that are not. It was the first time after all of these years, I saw an opening to be able to have an honest conversation with him, the I mean it probably was the first truly honest conversation I had with him, and I said, "Well, Dad, I accept that. Can you agree that there are things that exist that are real that you have not been taught or that you do not know?" He said, "Yes." I said, "So being gay and who I am and how I'm how I have become this way, I don't know how or why and." I could say God made me this way, but the fact is, is there have been times and places throughout all of humanity that there was a time when people said the earth was flat and everyone believed it. I mean, people were burned at the stake because they said otherwise. Uh, There was a time when everyone said that the planets revolved around the earth, that we were the center of the, and if you said anything different, you would be burned at the stake. So it's, we're kind of in a sort of same sort of religious prosecution. It's just, you just don't know why and how I am this way, but I am. And he said, well, I do you know. I I can accept that. And that's, that was the end of that conversation. Shortly thereafter, my parents came to LA and I wanted them to meet Adrian my a husband who we worked together um, in our business. And just before meeting him, my mom was, Pulled out. She said, "I, I don't. I, I can't do this. I'm. I'm not ready." And I had, I just told her, "I said, okay. Well, uh, call me when you're ready. I'm not. I'm not doing this Southern two-step." And we didn't talk for probably like I think it was almost four years after that. I was set. I will not communicate with you if you're going to act like this. And she was stubborn, and I was stubborn, and we didn't talk. And at that time, my dad was kind of like Switzerland. He didn't chime in in any one way and he saw it both ways and he was just going to let it play out and he then had uh, open heart surgery and obviously I, I needed to go visit him and at that time I forget what it was but I'd had a an, an incident on an airplane that terrified me and I never wanted I really had a, pr- a serious problem with flying and Adrian's like I'll come with you I'll be with you everything will be fine and I, I said okay so I, I told him we were coming and Adrian was coming and my mom was like no And mind you, we have not, I've not been talking with my mom. And so, but my dad at that point, he's out of the hospital recovering and was like, no, they're coming. And that's that. And so at that point he held his power dry and knew when enough was enough. And, and of course my mom was fine. And you know, her only condition was we slept in separate rooms. Which I knew that was coming, and I was like, of course. And we get there and she loves Adrian and Adrian loves her and it was fine. You know, she's very southern. Oh, hi, yeah, great, you're great, you know, and then harbor resentment and upset, <laughs> you know. But it was so great because at that point my dad was like to Adrian, you're part of the family. And shortly thereafter, I think the next year they came to Thanksgiving at our house in Palm Springs, and he called him son, and he bridged that gap effortlessly. And once again, it's like my dad's sort of code was gay, straight, whatever. This is what's right. And this is family. And that was that.
1: What was it like moving to LA? What was the culture shock like for you?
2: So at the time when I moved, I was in New Orleans. I was probably 24 or 25, maybe a little older. I had been making these documentary films about New Orleans culture. And I had kind of got on the radar of a big television producer named Brandon Tartikoff and so he got me set up at a, at UTA a big talent agency and I was going to go work for him in
1: LA for people who don't remember Brandon Tartikoff is a titan of American television, television. culture
2: Yes, I mean, like he revolutionized the way we watch TV. I mean, in in terms of, I mean, there was a golden age of television. He created the Golden Girls and Alf and Cheers and Frasier. I mean, all of these shows were all spun out of uh, Saved by the Saved by the Bell Dynasty. I mean, you know, he was just like this had the golden touch at NBC, and he was in New Orleans going through um, Turo. The the hospital there is where he was going through some treatments. Somehow, I got on his radar and he helped me produce a show that became that won an Emmy and so by the time I moved to LA I thought I I've been blessed and so I'm was going there to take over the world
0: set up at UTA
2: UTA big agents meeting with you know meetings meeting meetings meeting meetings and and shortly after I got there he passed away you know so one day you know it's like they said one day you're in next day you're out that's true I mean it was overnight boop nope thank you not interested it was an enormous culture shock because in New Orleans, everything happens very slowly and you talk over long lunches and you you eat and you drink. I'm, you know, and by the way, in New Orleans at the time, I was quite a catch. I was, you know, a handsome lad. Well, in LA, I was just this pudgy little doughy white boy in a seersucker suit that everyone was like, okay, I didn't know we had someone pitching a new clown show today. You know, it was... Like, I mean, I had suit the suit and the yellow pocket square. I mean, I all but had a carnation on my lapel when I walked. Double cuffs with cufflinks and, and literally everyone's looking at me like... <laughs> and I realized that for the first time, oh, there's a, there's a whole nother cool. There's a whole nother vibe. There's a, and so I had to adapt very quickly. It, it was all part of a journey that you know, basically brought me to where I am now, which is a pornographer and loving it and
1: yeah exactly like explain the jump
2: into porn I- for me i was an accidental pornographer it, it i mean i was trying to make movies i was trying to i'd had so i'd made a few films i had produced a tv show i produced this tv show for mtv uh, the andy dick show So yeah, I did that. By the way, the Andy Dick show for my parents was about as close to porn as it could get. They just did not get that at all. My early career was I was trying to be a society person. I was trying to produce. I wanted to produce PBS. I wanted to be social. I like being like, oh, there's da-da-da. I wanted to be a right and proper gentleman. And once I moved to LA, I was like, oh my God, that was just all a giant accumulation of who I am not. That was all not real, and so at that point, I really was seeking out and finding things that were wrong, that were wrong to provoke people into triggering them out of that very thing that I just went through. Stop trying to be something that you're not. And Andy was that. I mean, you know, for I mean, people have a lot to things to say about him, and he is crazy. But at the end of the day, he was always pushing boundaries, was always pushing limits. When I then started doing porn. The porn I make actually was born out of exactly how I worked with Andy, which is we had no money. We just had an idea and let's just make it happen and creating something out of nothing.
0: How did you go from a potential Tartikoff protege into porn?
2: It was a complete accident. Glenn Greenwald and I were business partners. We had a, a marketing company together. I had reached out to him at one point to do a lifestyle kind of lifetime kind of movie on him at one point they were looking for real life sort of courtroom drama-y things that were filled with opposites attract kind of things and so of course i had found him because here was this new york jewish attorney who was representing a white supremacist matthew hale in this big series of cases free speech case And of course I was like, I mean, what the fuck? And that's a great story that didn't go anywhere, but we struck up a friendship and we had a very similar sort of worldview, which is as disruptors. And so we started a marketing company that's doing like online marketing. And it just so happened that we got a porn client. And we just attached our marketing principles to that and blew up. A long story short, the the guy who in the company didn't want to pay us. And then he was a lawyer, we sued them and we ended up winning and we got the company. Basically we got all the assets. And so at that point I was like, well, you know, this was making so much money. Why don't I keep sort of running with this? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a bunch of money and then I can write and produce a movie or I'm going to do it. I'm going to put, go with my entertainment And that just kept ballooning into more and more and more and more things. And it it became a a pretty substantial business. Glenn didn't want to practice law anymore. And he started writing his blog, Unclaimed Territory. And so there came a point that he got very big. And people were like snooping around in the sort of connect. So we broke it apart. And we kind of divorced out of necessity.
0: People were trying to connect Greenwald to porn. Yeah.
2: You know, it wasn't until he broke the Edward Snowden story. And when that happened, after it broke, and I saw he was in the center of it. He called me up and he was like, just so you know, you're about to probably have your life turned upside down because every part of me has now been lexis nexus Googled and they found that court case from Harry Stud's video. And so I said, well, you know, I'm at that point I had owned several different porn companies. One of them was Cocky Boys. I just started producing and, and creating in that space. As a director, and it blew up and you know everyone was sort of coming and trying to get the dirt on Glenn because how can we bring him down? The thing they didn't understand was Glenn did not live in fear. So it's like there's nothing you're gonna bring down. I'm still gonna write what I'm gonna write. You can say anything about me. And it was once you can remove the lie, the original lie in your life, you'd have an ability to to not live in fear. But I had a new lie at that time. And my, that new lie was I was a pornographer and I did not want that out in any way. I was like, well, my parents probably are never going to be on the internet, so I might be safe, but I realized I needed to come out. And so I I came out at that time. I wrote a, I wrote an essay called, I am Jake Jackson. And basically that point was, I didn't want to participate in any news story that people ask me questions or whatever. I just wanted to say what I had to say and be done with it. And I addressed the Glenn issue, but I said, the reason I don't want to really talk is because I, this is who I am. I am a pornographer. I'm, I'm proud of what I do. It has changed my life, but my last name, Buchtel, is not my name. It's my father's name. And it's a name that he's very proud of. And this was now the next secret I was ready to go to the grave with. And I wrote it and put it out there and I never shared it with them. I never I still didn't have the guts to tell them. I thought at least I've I've done it. Like I've I've gone to confessional and the internet confessional <laughs> in 2012, 2013 maybe. At some point after I wrote I am Jake Jackson and I was doing pornography, my sister would his daughter uh would send us texts every now and then and the first one was mom knows you have tattoos and you know <laughs> and, so at one point, my dad and I talked about that. And he just wanted to understand what was the purpose and why and didn't understand it. But listened to me and didn't judge it. And uh, but then I got another text. It's like Lisa's like dad knows about cocky boys. Dad did at the time. My mom, I don't think did. And I was like, OK. And if he wants to contact me, he's welcome to. But I'm not doing this, are you okay? Have everything? I just was not doing it. If they wanted to talk about it, that was fine. And I didn't hear from them
1: for, for years and years and years. But and- your sister knew before that mm-hmm. came out? Yeah. So your sister knew and she was like cool with it, right? Or no? Yeah, I think she was. But she kept the secret for yeah, you. Yeah, right? yeah.
2: She knew because two of her, her children were gay you know, so we, we sort of became sort of a, how do I navigate some of this? And so, but my parents didn't know, but then my dad knew because he had gotten a piece of mail from a (laughs) collection agency and he wanted to Google it and Google me and make sure this was, you know, what it was. And then he saw it, didn't say a word. It was basically the playgirl all over again.
1: And that, silence just well going
2: it kept going when I was in LA I mean I've had two coming outs with my parents and the first time I came out and told them I was gay and about Adrian and then I uh, there was no big discussion about it until my other sisters my mom's daughter's husband had a heart attack while they were on vacation and died suddenly so I called at that point I reached out I called my dad and you just to see, see about coming to the funeral. And and he sort of very pragmatic walked me through the the facts of the matter, what had happened, what's going on, what's happening now, and brought me up to speed in that very solidly father way. And then I, I had not spoken to my mother in probably, you know, now four or five years again. And um, he put me on the phone to her to talk to her. And she, she was like, okay, well, you know, uh, all right, I hope you're fine we're, we're okay all right thank you bye a lot of
1: the larger porn features that you've made have that central kind of tension that story that where people are struggling for authenticity
2: for for a very long time i've been i've been making this this mythology about this family called the van derens and and, and essentially, it started with this movie called The Haunting, which was about someone who went to a house, and then they found these lovers. And so, the, and so everyone that went into the house, whatever energy they brought into the house, they would then get from these two lovers what was going on. And so over the course of time, the story of these lovers were pieced together of how this religious father was keeping them apart. And eventually, once he found out that we were gay, he took his son's lover, who was the, the valet, and took him out into the root cellar and shot him. And so these two lovers were stuck in this howl, kept trying to come together and come together. And so for me, the Van Derens represented my family, not only that, but what I was trying to become for my family. The perfect son, the filmmaker they could point to go, oh, look at him on PBS. And you, you know, we're always trying to live for our parents with some sort of pride. And then I realized, no, I don't wanna be a Van Deren. I, I you know, I, I wanna be the redneck hillbilly down the street that's just like shooting cans and going, yee-haw, <laughs> you know, what the fuck, you know? I wanted to be that guy, <laughs> you know, just living my life. And so, so a lot of my work is a, is a, is a reaction to them. So over time, what started to happen was when my dad wanted to get some information or needed to talk to me or wanted to convey something, they would do it through my husband that would text him, and it just became everyone was like, "Oh, Adrian will always respond, you know, and he will always get back to you." And Adrian was wanted us to all reconcile, so that he was sort of where everything went, and 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 they adored him. That he's very handsome, and he's been in a lot of movies and commercials. So that was where they were always able to now go, "That's Jason's husband," <laughs> you know, and and that was some point of pride that they can kind of point to because at this point, I was not the point of pride. And so they, they, over time, got to, to a point where they we were invited to come visit us at our house, which is where we shoot everything. It's kind of like it's like sort of the Playboy Mansion of gay porn. And they came and visited. We had sort of rules laid out, you know, no talking religion, no, no Fox News, no MSNBC, no politics. And you just stick to telling stories, and, which I don't mind. I love it. And they came and it was a delightful trip and they loved me telling little stories and I love hearing my dad laugh. He was kind of famous for always forgetting the punchline of jokes and even so much so that at one time he went to a comedy class (laughs) 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 on Louisiana humor, Boudreau and Thibodeau jokes, you know, so he would would tell it in his Cajun accent and try to do it. And they were all horrible and he could never get it right but that was what that was my dad and but he always so we were all back together and just telling stories and laughing and having some time together and but they're old and they're not you look at your parents as they're aging and you see your it's so awful you know that we then go i'm getting so old too you can't but you are facing your own journey as well and you know, when my dad was in New York, he wanted to help. He wanted to do something. He still had that sense of purpose. He was, you know, I've since garden now uh, in in the summer and I send him pictures of my garden. He loves it. And it's just so funny because that was the one thing I hated doing, going to work in the garden and pulling weeds and then their garden and they're working this thing. And it, it just is like, it's this weird karmic energy of it is a peaceful place for me and the fact that I can share that with them. These are my tomatoes and these are my green beans and uh, you know, did you ever have trouble with deer? How do you get rid of them? So there's a little bit of that back and forth. But when he was here, he so desperately wanted to do something, but he couldn't walk up to where the garden was, but was in the back and he would rake leaves and and put little piles together. And he, there was a moment when I went in the backyard where he'd spent probably an hour and a half raking. Like, and, and he does everything meticulously, just everything just perfectly. And I go in the backyard and there's these three beautiful piles that he'd raked up. And then I'm like, uh, because what he'd raked up was like this, these little things that I'd created to stop erosion, (laughs) you know, so they were like, they were put there on purpose to, to, right. To, to filter the water. And, you know, so I didn't, and he hit him right away. And I was like, no, 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 they're, I, they're fine. Don't worry. And I, I didn't, I just left them. And and now this fall a, a year later, there's just the, faint outline of where those piles were. And specifically with my dad, it he has imbibed me with this sort of need to be in a state of mutual respect in my environment and with people and with what I create. It's even to a certain degree, I run my business I can make more money running my business certain ways, but I still practice certain principles that I saw him struggling with that never made any of his solar panel business take off or these things that he was trying to do, but just couldn't get it to stick. And, you know, I, was, I would always sort of get mad at him because you're like, you're following the rules too much. You're too much by the book or you have to have a little bit more pizzazz or you're just too old fashioned or you're just too boring or you're just too detail oriented. You know, sometimes you have to cut corners and sometimes you have to do all these things. And so I, that would anger me about him. But as I got into business and made a lot of the mistakes that I thought were the things that would get me ahead, cutting corners, not being respectful, doing it this way, breaking the rules or whatever, inevitably, without a doubt, it would always come back and bite me in the ass. It would always, and I would just, in those moments, I'd always kind of go, oh my God, my dad's right. Okay. I see. I see that. I see that. Even though I know, I know without a doubt, both he and my mom will look at it and go, porn is not a business. Or, I, you know, a lot of people will go, oh, listen to this guy thinking, the whole holier than thou pornographer. No, it's still, in fact, the reality is in pornography and you're dealing with people in a most intimate level and the, is it is as intimate as you can get and like i said there was a point that i stood back and went oh i'm i'm now that i'm sexually free and i understand my sexual self and i i understand these sort of principles that i that had caused me so much pain and anxiety and frustration and lies and lies and lies and lies and lies i was so happy in the space that i was in that i saw that pornography isn't we can produce pornography in a way that's utilitarian for people to watch to get off and it seems disposable. The performers seem disposable because people look at it and go, oh, you know, they're broken anyway. Who gives a shit? My sort of principle in, in how I create porn and with our performers is really the sort of same principle I learned in the Boy Scouts, you know, when camping, we, we would do uh, high impact and low impact camping. And one of the things is, if you were to go camp in a campground, if you're on a trail or whatever, you're supposed to leave that campground better off than when you arrived in it. So there should be no trace that you were there. And that's how I feel about the the people that we work with. I, I want them to go through this process and at the end of it, be proud and bold and strong and having learned something along the way that they might not have been introduced to or, or have a sense of themselves. And I'm proud that that has held with Sandy. Every now and then, people will get into arguments and don't like creatively what you're doing or how you're doing. But uh, it's something that I'm I'm really proud of, and it's and for me, I feel grateful because it is the closest that I will ever come to being the F word, you know, father you know, or a D word or a dad. And for a very long time, I really cringed when people said, oh, you're like a father figure to them. Or you're you're like the, the dad. Because most of them, you know, oddly enough, the people we work with don't have dads in their lives for one reason or another. They either passed or they came from single mothers. My husband um, was uh, born, it was basically living in a single mother household. So there's a kind of empathy that we bring to that as well. And tough love. And, you know, God forbid, I hear myself saying things that my dad said to me. They're like, what? And someone says, well, well, that's something I really want. And I'm like, my dad's like, well, you can't get everything you want in life. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, oh, once you come to that conclusion, you will save yourself a lot of energy, you know. And so there's, there's sometimes you have to sort of share what you know.
0: What is your relationship like with your dad today?
2: It's peaceful. Mm-hmm. It's, I... I'm very grateful knowing that my dad and, and my mom, who are at the twilight of their life, know me. They know me. They have some pride of who I am and the life that I've created. I think they're proud that I've I married someone and I've been in a relationship for 20 years. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud about. This was the first year that they sent me a a gift for Christmas and not a card with some money in it and it was his um, stamp collection of when he was a, a boy you know from 1950 and I opened the stamp collection book and his handwriting is exactly the same when he was a young boy than as he is adult and you can just see it's, it's the handwriting of an engineer it's perfect and he lined up these stamps just perfectly and, and scooted them into the into the folders. And when you open it up, it's almost an art piece in itself, how the colors, every page is a different set of colors. And some he'd collected more of, and some he didn't, you, there, there are empty spaces where he didn't collect that stamp. And and it was the first truly creative thing that I've ever seen him do and while stamp collecting might not be considered creative in many people's books there is a creativity in it that in a focus and a steadiness and a determination and a purpose that I strive to be and to live up to I could never have enough patience and energy <laughs> to line up these stamps the way he did ever in my life and I can definitely say it's probably not -aha uh-huh. One of my most prized possessions. But, at the, but I think now, if you asked him now, he would look back and say, I lived my life. It's a life well lived. And, you know, the last time I talked to him, I was like, you know, I can definitely say the best parts of me have come from you.
1: Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at T-M-A-Y-F podcast and on Instagram at Tell Me About Your Father. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were recorded by Rob Hahn at the Playground Studios in Brooklyn and edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donohue. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Mark Sussman, Jessica Suarez, Michael Vecchio and Betsy Lerner.